You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin today with verse 3. If you have a Bible on your smartphone or a paper Bible with you, uh, however you want, go ahead and open it there at this time. And as you're opening there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you remember a game that used to be in Chuck E. Cheese called Whack-A-Mole? Remember Whack-A-Mole? Okay, I didn't have anything except Thor's hammer to bring today. So, but Whack-A-Mole was this game where like a mole, a little mole out of a table with holes in it would like pop up and you'd hit that mole back inside and as soon as you hit him, another one would pop up and you'd try to whack that one and then another one pop up and you'd try to whack that one and then I don't know if some of you were like the, you know, the two-hander people and you're like whack, 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 you know. I was a drummer so I always wanted there to be two mallets. I wanted to, you know, be like, bam, 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 and hit them all like that, right? But whack-a-mole is a crazy game, and it's really one of those games that's invented a perfect game for any pre-adolescent or any full-grown adult male to be able to just, you know, play it. It's, it's what makes Chuck E. Cheese fun for dads. So, you know, they basically just hit, you know, all these different things. And the game is evil, though. It literally is an evil game because it is frustrating. Because no matter how good your eye-hand coordination is, no matter how fast you think you can, no matter how good your guessing is, the game gets faster than your ability, and you finally just throw the mallet down, and the time runs out, and the too many moles popped up, and then you got to put in more you know, tokens or coins or quarters. It's just an evil, evil game, but it's kind of like the game of life. How many of you have a problem in your life where you feel like you just are getting a handle on that problem, and you're just getting that thing beat down, and another thing pops up? And maybe it's a trial or it's a test or a temptation. You're, you're just getting your hand on one temptation and it's like something else comes up and you're like, ah, how does this happen? And maybe for you it's just problems that are going on and, and you just think you're getting victory over weaknesses in your life, but it just pops up again. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed it just keeps popping back up? I mean, you might go and then read self-help books, which might teach you to like knock stuff down faster, but it doesn't go to the core. It doesn't go to actually healing you or making a solution. God's word, though, teaches us how to end the game with sin and how to unplug it so the power doesn't come back and isn't getting into our lives uh, anymore. But I want to take a little survey here. How many of you in this room have ever stayed up late when you knew you needed sleep? Okay. How many of you have ever stayed up late uh, and actually slept in church? Okay, I'll turn around. Go ahead. Okay, honestly, good job. Um, How many of you have ever eaten extra calories that you knew you shouldn't have? Like you totally, yeah, yeah, that's like all of us, right? How many of you have ever made a commitment that you couldn't cape? You probably knew it beforehand, but you made a commitment. You said yes, and you knew just it's never going to happen, right? Uh, how many of you have thought you ought to exercise but didn't? That's right. How many of you have ever tried to control your life or a circumstance or a relationship or another person only to find out that you couldn't control it? right? All of us, right? We've got these things that just pop up, and you want to, like, whack it down, and you just think, like, I'm going to conquer it. And as soon as you seem to get a little headway in any area, something else pops back up. Well, welcome to the human race, and if that's you, you're in the right church, because we're going to be real, and we're going to be ourselves, and we're going to just talk over the next eight weeks about how to make some life's healing choices Jesus gives us out of the Beatitudes. Even Paul, who would be known as one of the, uh, maybe people look at him as one of the greatest Christians uh, besides Christ himself, but Paul as a follower of Jesus, um, there were times that, that he said this in Romans chapter 6, he says this, it's on your outline if you're taking notes today, and I highly encourage you to do that because uh, you're going to retain more if you take notes, and we're going to say a lot of things here that I think you'll want to take away and maybe debrief on later. But Paul says this, uh, in your sermon notes, he says, I don't understand 
what I do. What I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Or in other words, I hate, I end up doing. I know that nothing good lives in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. I mean, can you relate? And Paul's writing it at a time where that was his current experience. He's not talking about, like, in my past before I got it all together and became perfect. He didn't. He's being real. He's saying, listen, right now, right now as I'm writing the book of Romans, that many of you are going to study a lot of years later, right now I do the things I don't want to do. And the things that I do want to do, I end up not doing. I still have this battle with my flesh. And there's so many of us that while we're forgiven, we're saved, we are going to heaven someday, but as long as we're in this body, we're going to deal with our flesh. It's the tension. We are declared righteous, but it's almost, but not yet, almost to heaven. But since we're not there yet, we're going to deal with being human. And that's reality. But too often the church tries to paint, and I mean church, big picture church in terms of maybe worldwide, tries to paint the picture that if you go to church, you got it all together, and that simply isn't true, and that simply isn't Sun Grove Church. We want to be authentic here. We want to be very real, and we're going to deal with struggles. Paul wrote those things that were going on in his life right at that time. On your outline, you've got a list, three little columns of words, and I want you to take out a pen and circle uh, any of these things that you find are problems that pop up in your life. So let's walk through that list here a little bit. Maybe, uh, you know, if they keep popping up, you circle it. So maybe it's stress or fears. Those fears keep popping up. Maybe it's overwork. Maybe it's attractions that you shouldn't have to another person or to something else. It might be addictions. It might be regrets. It might be diet. Or maybe it's worry or bad habits or anger or dishonesty. And you're like, how did that happen? And dishonesty perks up again, right? The need to control, just always trying to be in control of everything. Finances, you can't pay your bills, right? Maybe it's relationships, that these are painful memories that just keep popping up, and you try to squash them down, and those memories come back, and you're like, will I ever be free from those things? Maybe it's perfectionism or resentment or compulsive thoughts. You circle the ones that you find are popping up in your life. What are the hurts, the habits, and the hang-ups that keep popping up out of the soil of your life like a mole on a golf course, and you're saying, I wish I could just knock that thing back down. I wish it just would never, ever, ever come back. If you circle any of those things, I want you to know, again, you're in the right church. You've come to the right place. This is the place for people who want to grow. But the first thing about growing is we've got to admit what we need to grow through and work on. See, the, the, the root of all these problems that just kind of pop up out of our life, the root, the source of them, is that you and I try to play God. We're playing God, and you've got kind of a fill-in-the-blank there for that. It's the oldest temptation. It's the one that Satan in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, are there, and God gives them one rule to follow so they have choice, because without choice, you will never experience real love. You, you and I, we would be like robots. So God gives them one choice. You can eat of any tree of the garden except... The tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil. And so what do they do? Satan comes along as a serpent. He tempts them. And here's his temptation. If you taste and eat of the fruit, you will be like God. You will be like God. Did you ever notice Satan never tempts people to be like him? Eat the fruit, you'll be like a devil. Never tempts people, right? Right? It's always the bait and switch. The idea is... 
in order to make you bad, all I got to do is convince you that you're God, that you can choose, that you can play God. That's all I got to do. And he's smart that way. He's crafty. So he comes along with the earliest temptation, and every time those problems perk up in our life, they pop up. You and I try to play God. Well, how do you know when you're trying to, to play God? Let me give you an example. In Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel, he basically is telling the king of Tyre this. He says, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God, but you are just a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. See, you and I do as we please. Our culture wants to say, you know, I'm okay and you're okay, so you do what you please and I'll do what I please. And as long as the two don't clash, we're going to be okay with each other, right? Just go ahead and do. And I got to tell you that when you and I play God, it's simply when you and I do as I please. I like to name the God of our culture that his name, the God of our culture, or her name, the God of our culture is as I please. How do you know when you and I are playing God? It's when God tells you right to do something and we don't do it. When God says, you say in your heart, you know, I know God says not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You're playing God in that moment. When God says, I want you to do this, and you say, I'm not going to do that, you are playing God. We basically are saying, I know what will make me happy more than you, God, the creator of the universe and the creator of me, know what will make me happy. And God loves to make us happy, but the path for that is to make us holy. And so Jesus comes and shares the first of eight Beatitudes, and the word blessed means happy. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be happy. And he's going to say with his very first sermon, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help come along and tell you how to live in a way that will make you free from the things that pop up that keep becoming problems in your life. So basically, sometimes you and I say, well, I'm going to do what I, I want. I'm going to play God. When God says do this and I decide to do that, sex outside of marriage, and you say, happier, and you say, I'm going to do this. Or God says, you know, go ahead and tithe. And you're like, mm, I'm not going to do that. I'm really going to spend as I please God versus how you say we're playing God. Every time God says, you know, when you, when you in your head or your heart, when you're like, I know God, it's in that moment that you and I begin to play God. And that's the root. The root of that is just that pride. I mean, have you ever wondered what, like, the common denominator is in your relationships or maybe the crises you have in relationships? It's you. You know, you were here. You're like, I was in this location, and I had these problems, but maybe if I relocate or maybe I get to a different relationship, then I won't have those same problems. And those, guess what? Pop a mole, you know, a little whack-a-mole comes up, and you try, you're like, what's the common denominator? It's not the problem. It's me. We're the problem, Right? Because we're going to do as we please. Sometimes we're going to try to play God and we haven't been real about the stuff that keeps popping up in our life that we'd love to shut down and keep hidden away. You and I cause most of our problems. But we love to blame most of our problems on everybody else. Well, God comes along in his very first sermon. Jesus says, I want you to be happy. But let me tell you how to be happy. He's saying, I want you to live a blessed life. What does blessed mean? It means to be happy. It means to be content. And rich or poor, sickness and health, you know, for rich or for poor, I did a wedding last night in Burbank, and then flew on a plane back here, and, and, and that, you know, people look forward to that. Who would commit to me through the thick and thin of life, through better for worse, 
We want that commitment, right? And then you get in better worship. You're like, this is hard. What's the common denominator? It's us. And Jesus is saying, listen, when that stuff keeps perking up, I want to teach you how to be happy. Well, the first beatitude, the first, what we would call the first healing choice for getting rid of habits and hurts and hangups in your life uh, comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The first beatitude, it says that Jesus says, blessed, so happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he's saying right here in this verse, he's saying no one's going to see the kingdom of heaven through pride. Right? He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is a spiritual condition, for what? For they're going to see heaven. Nobody gets to heaven through pride. And we have a whole culture and a whole lot of people who say, I'll take my chances. I think I'll be good enough. And they put down all the things that pop up in their life. They're like, I can just hide those away and tuck those away. And those won't be of eternal issue for me. And God's saying, listen. You'll never see heaven through pride. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. I want you on that verse, maybe it's on your outline, and I want you to circle the words in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He's not talking about physical poverty, like a person who's just destitute. What he's talking about here is being a poor in a poor spiritual condition. That, that you've got spiritual poverty going on in the inside, that, that you're basically saying, God, I'm, I'm not being proud. I'm humbling myself. I'm recognizing my helplessness. I'm recognizing my sinfulness. I'm recognizing my hopelessness. He said, I, you're saying, God, whether I'm a believer or, or I'm not, I'm saying right now I'm recognizing being authentic about my life. I'm humbling myself. I'm being poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless in Celebrate Recovery, we have a first statement. And this first statement really describes what it means to be poor in spirit. And that statement is this, that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. The first step to getting better, right, is just admitting those kind of things, right? So there's this statement that we use in Celebrate Recovery to be able to say, listen, I can't control everything. I can't do that all. But what I, I need to admit is that my life is unmanageable. And that statement's going to say there should be then a help. There should be an outcome. That's what poor in spirit means. God says if you can develop that attitude, that you can admit that you're powerless, that you need help, that you can't control and manage everything in your life, but you need God's help, then he says, listen, if you can develop that attitude, you'll be blessed. But what does pride do? Oh, I, don't, I don't need all that. I, I'll just try to fix it and manage it and over control it on my own and you're not satisfied and it's really not getting better and the secrets still stay in the dark and the darkness is powerful they don't call them beatitudes for nothing because this is really the first attitude that you and I should be and over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at different attitudes that, that should be happening in our life that are heart beliefs that we begin to own and take control of. And the first one he's saying is, listen, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will see heaven. So you need to be poor in spirit. Well, how do you do that? You've got to fill in the blank there. It says, first, to be poor in spirit, I must humbly admit that I need help. I've got to face the truth about me. I've got to stop living in denial. And this is why we call this first choice at the top of your outline. It says the reality choice. We're saying, let's be real. 
Stop being, you know, fake, but let's, let's just come to reality. We're not over-projecting or looking for little details in your life. We're saying, let's just be real about the condition of our relationship. Let's be real. Let me personally be real about the condition of my life. I must, in my spirit, must humbly admit I need help. Why? Because Jesus said that the truth will set you free. So I have to face the truth about me. But the truth about the truth is that we don't like the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? We hate the truth about ourselves. We love the truth about everybody else, right? We, we want it all. Give it to us all about everybody else. But we hate it about ourselves. We, it's hard to face the truth about ourselves. So we humbly admit that I need help, that I can't control it. Well, the good news about our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups is that they can be healed. The bad news is that it takes humility. And we're going to look at what that means a little bit here today. James says in, uh, in, in his book of James in the Bible, he says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Think about it for a minute. That when you and I are proud, that God resists you. When you say, I'm going to keep this in, I'm going to try and manage this, I'm going to control it myself. God says, I'm, I'm in resistance against you. Your efforts, I'm going to resist those. Your efforts to manage it and control it, I'm going to stand in opposition to it. But what happens is God says, but I, he gives grace to the humble. What it means is when you and I finally admit our helplessness, that God comes along and is like, finally, okay, I have compassion because you're just finally honest. Now my compassions and my, the full strength and power of my help is engaged. But not until you admit with humility that you need God's help. God gives grace. Well, what is grace? We've got a lot of difference for grace. People call it undeserved merit, that God, we deserve something bad. God gave us something good instead. In this kind of instance, grace is really a gift from God that is the power to change. That God will do that. He'll give you the gift, the ability, the power to change. It's not something you could ever earn or accomplish or do on your own. And you've tried to read self-help books. And you've tried to do other things. And it just hasn't worked. People do crazy things to try to get better. They read crazy books. They go to crazy groups. They do all sorts of things to try to get better. And it just doesn't work because those things keep popping up. And God's going to say, listen, when you humble yourself, the full level of my compassion and my love and my grace, the power to change, is going to be available to you. But he's a gentleman. He doesn't force help on you. He waits for you and I to humble ourselves. What you need is the grace of God. Your willpower won't do it. Willpower runs out. As long as your motivation is there, you'll do it. But as soon as your motivation runs out, which runs like a sound wave, as soon as that thing dips, your willpower is gone. You won't follow through on what you've done. Why? Because there's some facts we need to admit. First of all, we need to admit that we're broken. We live in a uh, broken world, and so we need to admit that I am broken. We live in a broken world. It's a fallen world. Like, you know, our weather is broken. It doesn't work perfectly. The economy doesn't work perfectly. Our relationships don't work perfectly. Everything is broken, and you can't expect to broken people to come into a relationship with each other and make things perfect. They're going to find out that all I had to bring to the relationship was what I have, and I'm broken. So we bring me broken and you broken, we come into relationship, and we can't have perfect nirvana, heaven on earth. We're going to find out that we get in relationship, we're going to say, this is hard. We realize that, because why? 
You've been broken by nature and you've been broken by nurture. You've been broken by sins that you've done. And you've been broken by sins that other people have done to you and you've had to bear those. You've been broken by choices that you've made and you've been broken by circumstances that you couldn't control. We are a broken people. We are in the same boat. Nobody is perfect. I don't have it all together. I don't even know where it all is. I don't. And so we're all in the same boat. We are broken people. So we need to admit that we're broken. Secondly, we need to admit that my secrets make me sick. My secrets, they they do. They just make me sick. David said in Psalm 32, when I refused to confess my sins, I was weak and I was miserable and I groaned all day long. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide them all. And you forgave me and all my guilt is gone. Let me ask you this. What's eating you? you find yourself tired all the time, you find yourself maybe angry sometimes or frustrated and you've got all these problems, well, guess what? You need to ask, what am I holding inside? What's going on inside of me? What am I hiding? My secrets make me sick. And see, when I let them out, things get, and I'm open and honest and I'm humble about it, things get a whole lot better. Hiding never works. When you hide a sin, it increases. It actually gets worse in your life. So you need to take what's in the darkness and you need to let it out into a safe environment to let it out into light. We must admit to it to defeat it. Now, this is really interesting. I want you to think about this. You almost need to name it, like out loud. Call it what it is. Don't downplay it. Don't say it. Sometimes we all know it's there, but know it until you say, I struggle with, and you name it out loud. Then you're at a point when you can begin to receive help. So I can't work on my sins in my life until I admit the sins in my life. I can't work on the hangups in my life until I admit that they're in my life. And I can't work on the fears that I have in my life until I admit to the fears of my life. I must admit it to defeat it. I need to name it. I need to speak it out loud. Because there's something about bringing something that's in the darkness into the light that causes the darkness to lose its power. But we think the opposite. We think as long as I keep it in the dark, then I'm kind of safe and I can manage this thing and do this. And guess what happens? The mole pops up and you try to smack it down. You find that what was in the darkness is going to just, it's going to reveal itself all the time, no matter how much we tried to hold it down. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, you'll never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. Confess them and give them up and God will show mercy to you. See, I can't defeat it until I admit it. And then I need to realize that it's my pride and my fear that keep me stuck. So what causes change not to really happen in our lives? Pride and fear. Those two things keep me in a position where we're, we're stuck. I'm stuck with myself. I'm stuck in this relationship. I'm stuck with these conditions, these problems. This thing controls me and I'm stuck. So what keeps us stuck is pride and our fear. Those two things keep us stuck. Genesis chapter 3, Adam is in the garden, and right after he eats the, the fruit, and he, is, uh, he takes the temptation from Satan, Eve does that, Adam does that, and they, this is what he says. He says, Adam in the garden, right after he sins, he says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And that's what happens. That's what happens to us, right? The fear of exposure. That's what happens to you and me, that sometimes we're like, when, we, when I started talking about the darkness and said, hey, listen, you know, you need to admit it, or you need to, like, talk about it. When, when I said that, you're like, ooh, that's really scary. What happened to your heart right then is what happened to Adam in the garden. It's the fear of exposure. You, you realize that, oh, my goodness, I'm hiding it. 
And if I let it out, that scares me. But I got to tell you that ever since that time in the garden when Adam made that decision, people have been hiding their sin and hurling at everybody else's. It's like you hide your sin, but you take Thor's hammer, and you're ready to whip that at everybody else who sins in any way. You want full disclosure, full knowledge. You're ready to tell your kids what they're doing wrong. You're ready to tell everybody else what you're doing wrong. And too often the church is accused of being judgmental because they're hiding themselves. They're not being transparent and honest and open and authentic, and they're hurling at everybody else. A lot of you are doing that. It's pride. I don't want anybody to know about my weaknesses. That's pride. And it's fear. I'm scared to death. I'm actually scared of my own weaknesses. I'm scared of how other people will respond. I'm scared. It's fear and it's pride that keep our stuff hidden. That keeps us from getting unstuck. But the truth is I'm not okay and you're not okay and that's okay because God will make it okay. That's what Jesus came to do. Culture loves to say I'm okay, you're okay again. Do what you want. Do as you please and as I please as long as it doesn't run into each other. But could you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, well, wait a minute, time out. If, if I'm okay and you're okay, what in the world am I doing hanging on this cross, dying for your sin? What am I doing here? Jesus' death shows us that we're not okay, that he's paving a path for us to be free, to make some life's healing choices. And he's saying, listen, my first sermon, I'm now actively dying and I'll conquer death, but I'm actively dying to help you in those areas that keep popping up in your life. You're not okay. I'm not okay. And that's okay. What's not okay is your refusal to not admit that you're not okay. That's not all right. We need each other, but we try to fix ourselves. Jeremiah 2.13, Jesus, or God is speaking of his people, and he says this, My people have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. He's describing himself. I'm where real life is. I'm the spring of living water. They have dug uh, broken wells, their own broken cisterns that can't hold water. So he's saying it's like this. You can come to me with your bucket, and you can throw the bucket in, and you can get life from me. But when you resist me, now you try to dig your own well, and no water's in that well, and you keep throwing your bucket in there, and you keep pulling that bucket up, and there's nothing but dust in it, or if it rains and it holds a little water, you're pulling your bucket up, and your bucket leaks, and you're just trying to control that thing as it's leaking out everywhere. He's saying that's why people do. Why? Because of pride and fear. Not only do we reject God, but we make our own plan to fix ourselves, and it leaks. It just doesn't work. So you can't solve a spiritual problem with a physical substance. Wouldn't that be nice? You could take the truth pill, the truth serum, and just, I'm always truthful. And, you know, you could do that. Or, you, or you know, wouldn't it be nice to be like, I take the anti-addiction, you know, pill, and then I'm not dealing with this stuff that pops up in my life anymore. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting? But we've got to realize that that's not reality, and that's not the way God created us, and those aren't God's solutions to life's healing choices. He gives us better solutions. Because whether it's a pill or a drug or alcohol or TV or porn or anything else, it's not ultimately going to relieve your pain. Ultimately. It won't. But we keep reaching for these killer comforts that are killing us, thinking I'll numb my pain. So the first thing I have to do if I'm going to be poor in spirit is I need to admit humbly that I don't have it all together. Humbly, I need to admit that I need help. The second thing, if you're taking notes today, is 
uh, I need to humbly ask God for help. In 2 Corinthians 1.9, Paul was going through tough times and he said, we despaired even of life itself. And I mean, did you know at one point that Paul was so down, so distressed, so ready to get, kick the bucket and depressed and discouraged that he was just ready to give up on life? This guy's going on missionary journeys, doing all this stuff, and he hits this dark night of the soul. But he says this in the verse, he says, we saw how powerless we were to help ourselves, but that was good. Why? For then we put everything else into the hands of God who alone could save us, for even he can raise the dead. See, last week we talked about how do we trust the words of Jesus, because he said he was going to live, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he rose from the dead. So we can trust what he said because he has the power to rise from the dead. And so Paul, in the same way, is saying, listen, we so despaired of life, but we, it was good because we gave everything up to God. We totally surrendered, and he's got the power to raise the dead. If God can take a dead person, then he can raise a dead marriage. If God can take, raise a dead person, he can raise a dead career. If God could raise a dead person, he can raise a dead dream. If God can raise a dead person, he can restore love and romance and connection in your marriage. God can do miracles. God can bring good out of bad. God can raise the dead. And he can be trusted to do what he says he can do because he's still in the business of raising dead things to life. The times you and I mess up, the times that you're like, I'm done, I'm so down, everybody knows about all my junk, I've totally failed everybody, I've displeased and disappointed everybody in my life, God's saying, good, because I raise dead things to life. Isn't that good news? He is in the business of raising dead things to life, but how does he do it? We ask him for help. God, I can't manage this anymore, I can't be good enough, I can't do it, I need help. So we surrender authentically the good, the bad, the downright ugly, shameful, embarrassing. We admit it all. God, I need your help. Now we ask you for help. So let me just tell you something. I beg you, as a friend, as a pastor who loves you, do not wait till you hit rock bottom to get to the point where you finally ask for help. Be poor in spirit. Humble yourself. Ask God for help before you get to that point. The message paraphrase of Matthew 5, 3 says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. I admit I need help. I ask God for help. Then there's a third thing I do if I really want to be poor in spirit, and this is the hardest set for many people, and that is I must humbly accept help from other people. God wired you and I in such a way that we don't get well by ourselves. Because if you could, you would have, and you haven't. He's also not made you God, because if you were God, you could have fixed yourselves, and you haven't. So he says, we grow in community. Here at Sun Grove Church, we say we encounter God. So what's humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves to God? We're encountering the living God. Then what do we do? We grow through community. Because God didn't cause us to just operate in isolation. He, we have to humbly admit help from other people. You know the problem that you'd like to get rid of in your life? You know that temptation that keeps popping up? You know those things, that, those fears you keep facing, and they just haven't gone away? Well, if you could have fixed it, you would have. But you can't. So you must humbly accept help from other people, and that's only going to happen when you finally become honest with them. 
The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. See, in Sun Grove Church, we're not just believers. God calls people to be believers. He also calls us to be belongers. That we belong with each other, that he's wired us for each other, that we have to lean on each other, that we need friends around us. We need each other to actually be healthy. If you don't have anybody in your life that you can be totally, brutally honest with, then you're not healthy. You need people in your life because you grow in community. That's why we have community groups here at Sun Grove Church. Uh, when you're going through a tough time, you need a brotherhood or a sisterhood or other people around you to really help. I mean, really, when a guy is going through a tough time, he's like, this is brutal. You don't understand how bad this is. And he's like, really, I mean, just right now, it's so hard. I don't even believe there's a God because why would God allow that to happen? You're like, I don't even, I'm not sure that I have faith in God right now. It's just so brutal that he needs a brotherhood around him who will go like, don't worry about it. We believe in you. And you, we will carry you through on our faith in God as you process through the brutal time that you're going through right now, that we will walk with you. We believe you're going to get better. We will walk with you and let our faith in God hold you up until God comes full circle and shows you that he can be trusted to do what he said he would do. We all need that. Guys need a brotherhood. Women need a sisterhood. And so we ask you to be involved in community groups. It's why we have it. It's, it's why we really insist that every member of this church be in a group Bible study. It's not just enough to stand and sing on the weekends and sit and listen, right? Listen, I'm a pastor. I understand the limitations of the pulpit. I know how much of this sermon I will forget by next week. And I've done it twice today, right? What did I speak on last week, right? See, you know, you're, okay, Easter. Uh, res resurrection? Yeah, that was the easy one. You know, but you know. <laughs> Come next week, you won't remember that two weeks ago was even Easter. You'll be like, eggs, what? You, you know, the candy will be gone. All the decorations are down. You won't even remember it, right? But it's why we have community groups. We need to be with each other. We need to be in community. We need to be able to talk it out with each other uh, as we walk through life. There's a pastor in Houston. He had a son. His son had an iPhone. The, the charge went way down on it. And so the pastor thought, well, I'll plug it into my MacBook, you know, my, the, the Apple laptop, the MacBook. So I'm going to plug in the laptop, and so he plugs it in, and the thing won't charge, like the, the phone won't charge, and he's getting all confused. Why won't this charge? Why won't this charge? And he keeps plugging it in, and it won't charge. And finally what he does is he, he opens the lid to look like it's something going on, he plugs it in, the phone begins to charge. And what he found out is it's only when you open the book that you have the power. It's only when you open the book that you and I have the power. So when you sit in somebody's living room and you begin to unpack the scriptures and the book is open, the power of God is there to help you in your weaknesses. When you sit at Starbucks or maybe you have an early morning breakfast meeting and when you're with a group of other people and you open the book, it's there that you have and get the power. James 5.16 says this, Admit your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Let me be really, really clear about this. If you want to be forgiven... Tell God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us, like clean us up of all unrighteousness. If you're just looking for forgiveness, tell God. If you're looking to be healed, Scripture says you have to tell someone else. It doesn't have to be a priest. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It needs to be a trusted believer who says, I'm not okay, you're not okay, but that's okay we got to be real with each other.
to get to a point to make some life-healing choices and participate with what God is doing so that we can be healed. Will you watch this video? Growing up, I had a really loving home, but my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was so busy trying to take care of the kids and of the household so my dad wouldn't get angry that um, they were both pretty much emotionally unavailable. And it was my dad's, my dad's way or the highway. You know, I uh, didn't really have a good identity of who I was growing up. I was trying to be who my dad wanted me to be, who my mom wanted me to be, and uh, it was really tough. I just didn't know who I was. My dad was really angry when he was sober, but when he drank, he was happy and he was the daddy I always wanted him to be. So I saw that transformation that alcohol made in my dad, and so I started drinking when I was 13 because I didn't feel good about myself, and I felt pressured uh, just to be who I wasn't. So I started making really bad decisions around alcohol, around drugs, around boys, and uh, trying to fill that hole in my soul. I continued that bad choice making and just that destructive behavior throughout junior high, high school, college, uh, but I never really saw my part in any of it. I always blamed other people for my circumstances. So in about 1993, after a failed marriage and still much destructive behavior, I hit my bottom. I had been raised Catholic and I knew God but I wasn't really close with him, and I certainly didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I remember laying on my bed and just crying out and saying, God, I know you have more in mind for me than this life I'm experiencing. I knew he wanted me to be happier than I was. So I told a friend about how I was feeling and that I thought I had a problem with alcohol, and uh, I was taken to my first AA meeting. There I found hope. There I was able to meet with other people who felt the way I did, who could relate to me. So it was there that I really started to build a foundation on um, getting new tools on how to make better choices, how to not drink, certainly, but more than that, how to live. Because once I took away the alcohol from the equation, I was crazy. I didn't know, I didn't have anything to stuff my feelings. That was my coping mechanism. So once I took away that, I really had to learn how to deal with life. After a few years of recovery, I started hearing old memories, how I would never be happy if I wasn't married with children. And at this point, I was about 38 years old and single. And I felt like I wasn't worth anything again. So I made a bad relationship choice, got married for a second time to someone who was in Alcoholics Anonymous, but unbeknownst to me, was still using. So after I found that out, I started using also. I used for another year and then finally hit my bottom. I came clean with my friends and with my family and started over. This was my second divorce at this point and it was the toughest start over of my life. But again, AA and recovery came to the rescue. I was starting to make new friends. God put a lot of people in my life, a lot of women in my life who could help me. And once again, I had hope and I was starting to experience some freedom. In about the year 2000, I met Brian. He introduced me to Sun Grove Church. 
it was there immediately God put into my life women from Sun Grove who started te teaching me about Jesus. And I knew absolutely that that was the answer for me. And so I accepted Jesus into my heart um, in early 2000s. And I can look at my life now and say, this is what it was like before Jesus, and this is what it was like after Jesus. Uh, my recovery, my life skyrocketed when I met Jesus. And I experienced healing that I never really had ever experienced before. Brian and I went to a church at one point where uh, some friends of ours were leading a Celebrate Recovery group, and we had no idea what that was. We went, and I felt just the Holy Spirit there, and I felt free, really free for the first time because I could say Jesus and alcoholic all in one sentence and not be judged for believing in Jesus and not being judged for being an alcoholic. Right away, I went to the pastor of Sun Grove, and I said, we need to start this program at Sun Grove. And he said, okay, go ahead. So Brian and I started uh, Celebrate Recovery at Sun Grove Church in 2006. And we had about 10 people show up, and it was awesome. Uh, we had all kinds of different people with different hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and they wanted to give back because they had some experience with recovery. We also had new people who had no idea what Celebrate Recovery was all about. Once we started Celebrate Recovery, it was, it was just amazing. One of my favorite things is to see the light go on in somebody's eyes. And my favorite part is being a part of that process to be able to share my hurts because Jesus uses my hurts for their healing. Every time I share my story, every time I share my testimony, I get more healing in my life. And that's what I found with Jesus is I found that healing that I didn't have before. I want you to experience relief. I want you to experience freedom and the things that keep popping up in your life. But I got to be honest with you, Satan doesn't want that for you. There are three fears that Satan uses, and you might want to jot these down, but three fears common to everybody that Satan uses to keep you stuck. And I want you to understand what they are. First, Satan keeps you stuck with the fear of your own emotions. Have you ever felt like, if I finally let this out, I don't know if I'll be able to control everything or control my emotions or anything? You ever felt that way? How many of you ever felt like I'm losing my mind? You're under such duress. You're like, if one more thing happens, I'm going to loony bin. How many of you ever felt that, right? A lot of us, right? Every human being has felt that fear. Uh, but, you know, some of, every human being has felt like I'm going crazy, but you're not. I need to tell you, relax. Everybody's felt that. You're not so special. Everybody has felt that they were going crazy, and everyone has felt a different time that they were losing their mind. It's not that big a deal. Actually, only rational people have that fear. Crazy people never fear that they're going crazy. They don't care. It's just the rational people. So if you've had that fear, good news. You're not going crazy, right? Because you, if you've ever had that fear, you're, you're not going crazy. So only rational people experience that thing. I want everybody real quick to smile. Everyone smile, smile right now. I want you to turn to your neighbor and look at the person next to you and say, I'm not... Uh, say, I'm broken, but I'm not crazy. Okay, I'm broken, but I'm not crazy. Good, you've just gotten over that fear of your own emotions. Second, that Satan will do is he will definitely uh, use the fear of the reaction of others, right? Because we spend so much of our time, especially here in California, so much of our time projecting image. 
And so we fear that somebody else is going to react. And, and I got to tell you, you know, if you're, if you're the person in the community group that when someone else finally gets honest and humble and they share the reality about themselves and you immediately jump in to fix them with solutions and stuff, you drive me crazy. <laughs> Don't try to fix everybody. They're not a project. If they come humbly and say, how do I do it? Then give a solution. But your job being in a community group is not to fix everybody else. Because sometimes when you try to fix everybody else, when your reactions to fix everybody else, you're really shielding what's going on for you. Pride is the source to say, I've got the answer for you. So get in a place where you can share, where the reactions of others, it becomes a safe environment. And our community groups work to be safe environments where people can share and be real with one another. And we encourage you to work through that fear of the reactions of others. Play it out. What if they act shocked? Uh, people always experience this fear when they come and talk to me, Pastor, I'm going to share with you something I've never shared with anybody else. I guarantee you I've heard it before. One, but I love it because people are finally becoming real. They're finally going to be honest. And it's so beneficial mostly for them to be able to share that. Find a trusted friend. Find someone you can just talk to about what's really going on with you. Don't worry that they might react or think less of you. Third is the fear that being honest might not work. Well, I was honest. And we started taking these steps, and you know what? It just didn't work out. But I got to tell you something. No, you weren't. You were not honest. You did not go all the way there. You did not disclose full transparency. Because if you were, you would be healed. But you're not. You didn't go all the way there. The fact is, God says, confess your faults to one another, whereby you will be healed. That's a promise. God is not a liar. Admit your faults to one another. God has promised to help, and we're going to do this together. And here's how we're going to do it. People learn different ways, right? Some people are auditory. It's the ear gate. They learn by listening. So you come and you listen to a sermon, and you just really learn, and you retain a decent amount of it. You learn by learning. But that other people are like, I, I, don't, uh, I don't learn just by listening. I need to read it. And so you, want it, you read stuff, and that's the eye gate. You see it. You read it. You take it in that way, and you be, that's how you learn. You're like, if I could just see it diagrammed out, I'm visual. I want to be able to do that. That's the eye gate. Some people like to talk about it. That's the mouth gate. It's when they mix it up. It's when they're like, well, I don't agree with you because this and that. And then all of a sudden they have this aha moment. Oh, that's the mouth gate, right? As you're mixing it up, as you're talking it out, you come to a healthy conclusion. And some people like to do it. They're like, don't give me a manual. We don't need to talk for three hours. Just let me do this. And they're like, I'll figure it out along the way. And they want to get active and do it. And as they do, then that learning gets reinforced. So there's four things that I'm going to ask you to do over the next eight weeks. And if you do these four things, it will make a radical difference in your life as God begins to heal you and I as we walk through life's healing choices. The four things are this. I want you, number one, write these down. Listen to the sermons. That's the ear gate. So come every week. Listen to the sermons. If you have to miss a week, you're out of town, go online. Download it. Watch it on Vimeo. Watch it on our website. It'll be up every week. So you go listen to the sermons because that's the ear gate. Then the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is download or buy. But whatever you got to do, put it on your mobile device. Whatever you got to do, get life's healing choices. Uh, the book that Celebrate Recovery puts out by Rich Baker. And that uh, is going to, we're going to read that over the next eight weeks. And that's going to be the eye gate. As we interact and read, we do have copies available for you in the lobby. Uh, but download it, do whatever you need to do to get that and begin to commit to read that. Uh, then the next thing I want you to do is get in a community group. 
because you need to be able to get in a place where you can be talk about it and use the mouth gate. And what I'm asking every community group to do, and so if you're a leader, hear me. I'm asking for a portion of your time in community group. I want the men to separate with the men and the women to separate with the women so there's a safe environment where they can go deeper in a safe group. Because guys typically are going to go deeper with some things that they may not want to say in front of their wife or they may not want to say in front of everybody else's wife because of fear of condemnation. So go ahead and get in a group where for a portion of that time, so be together, separate for some discussion time, then come back together, enjoy the fellowship and all that time that you have together. If you're a couple, talk about what you were learning on the way home. But do that. Get in the community group, and you can sign up for those in the lobby as well. And then the last thing we're all going to do is we're going to memorize the verse because it helps us make the right choice. So the verse this week is the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as you and I memorize that this week, it's the doing thing. Because as you and I memorize it, God's going to give you and I opportunity to apply humility. To say, look at me, I'm managing or look at me, there's that mole that's popping up. That's what it is. I'm trying to control it. And God's saying, squash it down. Be real. Be authentic. So you hear it, read it, talk about it, and do it. And that'll help you grow. And you'll be a different person in eight weeks. Friends, it's going to be a life-changing eight weeks. It really is. I'm so excited. We've been praying for this series and what God's going to do in and through it. We'll close with this, Romans 5, 6. When we were unable to help ourselves at the moment of our need, Christ died for us. You could go through all these things, but unless you know Jesus Christ personally, these things won't help you. You need grace, the power of God to change. And that comes by humbly submitting yourself to say, God, I am lost in my sin. I need your help. I can't manage my life. I can't control it. I need you. You died for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. And you want to get the help of God and offer your life with your heads bowed, your eyes closed just so you're not distracting anyone around you. If today you would like to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, that today is the day you cry out to help for him, to him, to him for help, then simply pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, I need your help. I humbly admit that without you, I'm stuck. And so God, I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sin. Clean me up. Make my life rise from the dead. Make me a new creation. I believe that you are God, that you died for my sin, and that you rose again. So today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.